could pleasure be something other than stuff maybe we do with penises and vaginas, maybe in boobs and I don't know, vibrators? Is it possible it could be more than that? Hello and welcome to Fuck Yeah, the podcast where we say fuck yeah to embodied self-care. My name is Robin. I'm one of your hosts and I'm here with the um, bedangled, I love these earrings. I don't know if that's the right word. <laughs> You're bedangled. Um, it giving me like gypsy, 70s gypsy vibe um, earrings. Sarah, how are you? I didn't even get a shirt on today. So I went and I got these earrings to at least make it so that I'm presentable. Um, I'm heavy this week. There's been some things happening in the world. I hate to throw our normal format off of fuck yeahs and giving some levity, but there's one thing in particular this week, I think, before we get into the conversation that I really feel like I need to acknowledge and talk about with you. We learned about the passing of Nex Benedict in Oklahoma, the non-binary sophomore mm-hmm. who was beaten in the girls' bathroom and then not taken to the hospital mm-hmm. or given any sort of treatment until grandma came and picked them up. And I know that the cause of death is still unknown, but this is this news has, first of all, it the incident occurred on February 7th. It got no coverage. Mm. And then we started learning about it this week through social media. So it's, I mean, everything about it is just absolutely outrageous and heartbreaking. And I don't know if you, if this, if you saw images, but as soon as next hit my social media feed, I kind of lost my breath because to me, they look like Ruby. Yeah. I was like that they could be like cousins mm-hmm. uh it, it personalized it in a way not that news of trans and non-binary kids isn't personal but that was just an added layer of like holy fuck yeah i i think that pictures of necks that i've seen circulating they have a similar like sweetheart non-binary vibe that ruby mm-hmm. does Yeah. And it was personal for me also. And like you're saying, not that if it, if it didn't affect my personal identity, not that it's less important or anything, but it affected me in that, like I'm from, I was born in Oklahoma, Mm -hmm. but when I think about what it would be like to grow up now, a lot of what I do is fantasize about being able to be openly and aware and having an awareness around my non-binary-ness mm. and being able to really live that out in high school. But like, you know, my dad just, 
you know, he still has a home in Tulsa. And he was so proud when they got a, um, you know, a, a rainbow flag sidewalk. And there was, you know, in their teeny tiny gay neighborhood and everything. And so it just feel it's like that shattering thing where sometimes we feel like things are, are getting safer or more permissive and more freedom to express ourselves. Yeah, I I mean I think, you know, you can trace the bullying back at least based on what their grandma has said to the rhetoric that is happening in politics and then followed by a teacher coming out in support of LGBTQ students and so then there's this huge rise in in violence against trans and queer and non-binary people and so if there is if anyone is still holding on to the idea that yeah. this doesn't matter. It absolutely does. This is yeah. life or death for some people. And this is a horrible way to be reminded of this. And I just, grandma said about necks, they were so free. Mm. And I am, that was really that really got me. Yeah. Um, and I hope, I hope they are now, you yeah. know? So, um, I did find, um, the info on a go, the family has put together a GoFundMe. So when we post this episode, we'll put the, um, the link to that with the, not just in the show notes, but also posted on social media, because if you're also feeling really, affected by this, you know, let's try to help the family. Yeah. Yeah. Do what we can. And I think that, um, this dangerous, violent rhetoric towards non-binary and trans people and children, it's not only manifesting in this violence from external sources, but it's also internalized. It's, it is so dangerous for how it can be internalized or how it can come to these kids externally. You know, yeah. yeah. It's dangerous on many levels. And it's just not worth it over like, what are we, why are we ostracizing and ridiculing and dehumanizing people? It's just, it doesn't make any sense to me. It's so infuriating. And that's part of what's so infuriating. It's so unnecessary, so uncalled for, so disgusting, you know. Anytime something like this happens, like all of the fear, internalized stuff, like, you know, it comes up. So let's, um, let's be extra gentle with our, yeah. <laughs> our queer fam right now. In light of everything that's going on, I think that maybe let's skip the fuck yeah this week. We can always double up next week. Let's give a little space. And um, and let's talk about who we're going to have on today. Yeah, I think that the uh, the conversation that we have with our guest can be our fuck yeah this week and bring some some remedy to this very challenging time that we continue to live through. I'm excited because I get to kind of basically interview you and Anne because we're going to be talking about the Pleasure Attitudes course that you have developed with uh, Anne Hodder Ship. 
Yes. Who's going to be on today. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, if you've been with us since season one, Anne was with us talking about her book, um, her updated approach to the love languages. Her book is Speaking from the Heart, 18 Languages for Modern Love. And in everything that Anne does, it's a really expansive approach. She's also mm-hmm. the lead educator and founder of EDSI, Everyone Deserves Sex Ed, which is the sex education certification program that I went through. And that if anyone is thinking about doing sex ed certification, I really highly recommend it. Her approach is really different than a lot of the certification programs in that it is intentionally expansive Mm -hmm. and it's constantly being updated. So it's really about being as current as possible with the information. And there's a lot of like challenging, you know, your previously held beliefs and biases, Mm-hmm. Which I think is an interesting part of the program because it has a little bit of that personal development as well as the professional development. So yeah, let's bring yeah. it on. Yeah, let's get into it. I can't wait. And welcome to the podcast again. Hello, thanks for having me again. I'm going to warm you up with some questions. Hopefully they're not repeat from your first episode with us, which I'm not remembering the exact title, but I think it was Fuck Yeah to Inclusive Love Languages, or maybe it was Expansive Love Languages. Both work for me. (laughs) Everyone should go check out that episode. We talk about your book, Speaking from the Heart. 18 languages for modern love, which is such a nice reinterpretation of the really restrictive love languages that Mm -hmm. we've had to work with up until this point. It's true. And it's actually out in paperback now. (gasps) That's exciting. Mm -hmm. So people can hold it in their hands. We totally can. That conversation changed everything, like, because you hear about the love languages so much and like learning about the origins and everything. It was very insightful. And and to have that kind of skepticism and reworking things in order to be more inclusive and and accepting of more than just like hetero Christian types, I think is, that was really nice. Uh, that's actually what I think is sort of your superpower, is breaking down the roots of a lot of these things that we just accept as the cultural norm Mm -hmm. and then going back and giving us the really good analysis of where does this belief actually come from? And once we know that, how do we want to be in relationship with this thing? Mm -hmm. Totally. I feel like that is such a big part of autonomy is just sort of like, well, what is the context of all of this stuff, not because I'm shaking my fist at it and think it's immediate bullshit. It's just like, Mm -hmm. I would also like to know where it comes from just so I have all the information to then make choices on, since there are so many things we have to make choices about where we don't actually have the right to fully Mm -hmm. know everything. And so if there is a way to just kind of like source some of the beliefs or the norms that aren't necessarily based on anything that's like factual, provable, biological, measurable. (laughs) And just kind of see like, yeah, so who decided this and when and how has it changed? Do I even vibe with that original source person? And who else has had other things to say, but like muted or disappeared and potentially maybe 
that's because there's something a little bit more truthful or accurate or just like human about what they had to say in contrast to what the original source said. What I like about it is you're not throwing out the entire thing. Like when you were telling me about the origins of the love languages, I was like, well, fuck it, it's useless. You know, but you're like, actually, there's like some core things in here, like we could think about it in this, you know, take the concept and then actually apply it with a different level of knowledge about like queerness or, you know, feminism or or whatever, or or actual like science behind behind these things, and and then mold it into something that's actually very useful and inclusive. Totally. Like if I want to throw something out, I want to throw out the person with the uh, unearned fame, power, (laughs) profiting, Mm -hmm. notoriety, uh, relevance. They can Mm -hmm. go in the garbage can for sure. (laughs) Well, and also all of this stuff that is like when you trace it back, especially when we're talking about pleasure, Mm -hmm. sex, like you can trace back so many of these kind of cultural beliefs to puritanical Mm -hmm. thinking and way of life and like Mm -hmm. just going like oh but does this way of living is this actually what I should be modeling my relationships how I feel about my body how I feel about uh things like quote-unquote guilty pleasures like Mm -hmm. all that sort of stuff. It's so fascinating when you realize like, oh, shoot, we are still Puritans. Yeah, totally. For me, when it is difficult to let go of some stuff that is really getting in the way, like body image stuff, it would be lovely to be able to be like, I accept all of this. Mm, Mm -hmm. I love it. You know, I'm going to squeeze it. Like, no, I just know I will never get there. And that's there's too much body trauma. So, okay. Mm -hmm. But then when I was able to learn where all of those feelings are rooted Mm. in and where they came from specifically like anti-black misogyny and Mm -hmm. oh my gosh like so much oppression and violence it was like Mm -hmm. oh well oh my god how on it's way easier to let go of this now like screw the self-love toxic positivity shit this is racist as fuck good goodbye then yeah, it's so much easier that way because I, I don't the, the patterning is just irrelevant after that because it's so against my values. I really feel that it makes it so much easier because it feels more rebellious and punk rock to me. <laughs> like, totally. Fuck you. I'm not going to do what you tell me, you know. <laughs> yep. Yep. Like you can be your low self-esteem can remain low when for mm-hmm. all the other reasons, because it's right. so hard to like not have low self-esteem, honestly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But at least like it doesn't have to go there. Because mm-hmm. they can go fuck themselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, all of this has me thinking of, uh, I've been deep diving into JVN's podcast. Mm. I, I'm loving it. I just sent you this episode, Robin. Yeah. Uh, is Romance Dead is the is the title of it. But the guest was Sabrina Strings. And her newest book is The End of Love, Racism, Sexism, and the Death of Romance. Mm. And her first book was, which now I really want to read, The Black Body, The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia. Mm. And 
he just does this incredible job of breaking down the white supremacist roots of the romantic movement Mm -hmm. and then the dissolution of it through the 50s having a lot to do with playboy and these sorts of so Mm. it's just like get her books they look so interesting and it just is sort of speaking to what you were saying earlier and about like when you actually trace a lot of this stuff back it's just not aligned with what your current thinking or ethos actually is yeah Mm -hmm. i'm learning that i don't think ann needs a (laughs) warm-up Okay, so how did you guys meet? I actually don't know this story. And how did it come together that you made the Pleasure Attitudes program together? Like, I want to get into more about what it is and everything. But what's your meet cute, though? I think it was my very first industry trade show. It might not have been a trade show, but it was an industry event. And I was with Kristen Tribby of Fun Factory. Uh, we had her on for fuck yeah to sex positive parenting. And she's like, Oh my gosh, you have to meet Anne. She's so awesome. So you were like presented to me as this very cool person at the time. I believe you were working for XBiz, which was oh, yeah. probably a very short lived stint for you. So I met Anne as the super cool industry vet, even though I think probably we came into the industry around the same time, but mm-hmm. I definitely thought Anne was like in the know. It's mm-hmm. so funny. <laughs> yeah. I was working at XBiz, which is like a, a magazine that covered the adult industry. I was in the midst of really fighting for them to even cover the sex toy industry because they did mm, not. Really? And so I was like running around befriending all of the sex toy companies. And what year do you think this is? 2008. Okay. Yeah. And Babeland, coincidentally, was the very first sex toy store I'd ever gone in. And it was all by accident in the summer of like 2004. And it just looked like an accessory store. And I was just mm-hmm. like, oh, bags and shoes for sure. And I walk in and I'm like, oh my God, how cool is this? Mm. And like bought my friends some like vibrators. Yeah. And I got myself a dildo that was like kind of the shape of the person that I was dating at the time because we were like apart. <laughs> So anyway, seeing like the Babeland crew was almost like, oh my God, the Babeland people. And then Tristan <laughs> introduced us. And weirdly, I was in the know, but only by accident because I had to know what was going on so that I could try to then have a job and like do what seemed important at this ridiculous magazine that I was at. But at the same time, feeling like I could be friends with Kristen and Sarah and the other femme feminists of that side of the industry with like Alicia Rellis and um rest in peace and power um, and coolness and lipstick that gave me a sense of like, Ooh, they're in the know as well. So like Mm. I'm, I'm in it or I'm in like the good or cool crowd as a result. So you both thought the other one was super cool. Yeah. Stilling it down for me. Thank you, Robin. Uh, One thing I want to call out and what was the start of pleasure attitudes and just like such nice solidarity and support from you, Anne. Mm -hmm. And this is what I think is always one of my great takeaways from our friendship. When I was leaving Pleasure Chest, Anne was the very first person to reach out. 
Mm. and say like, how can I help? What can I do? Let's grab coffee. And it just felt like this really nice warm hug Mm. because it was kind of a leap of faith that I was taking and it was scary. And you, we like went and got, I can't remember if we got lunch or coffee and you just were brimming with ideas. And I was like, uh, whatever you're working on, absolutely. Like I want to be a part of it. And so we were working on this big summit, an in-person, a large scale in-person event, because we both have a lot of event production experience and it was going to be in LA summer 2020. Mm-hmm. And we were, like, we hit the trade show in January and we had our press kit and we were getting sponsors and we were all ready. Mm-hmm. And the world came to a screeching halt and we did this really hard left pivot and figured out having no experience doing digital events, how to put on the summit as a digital event. So it was mm-hmm. the success summit in 2020, which was amazing. We had all, it was the intersection of healing and pleasure and spirituality and sexuality and sensuality. And we had 40 speakers and it wow. was just really special uh, event that we did. We took the learnings from that and we started developing some of our own coursework. And so this will be the third iteration of Pleasure Attitudes. And it's the best, in my opinion. It's pretty good. We are definitely biased, but it's yeah. good. Do you feel like because <laughs> you've been able to workshop it and evolve it over time? Yeah, for yeah. sure. And also, you know, just kind of see like, where are we also at in life and what seems to be maybe a particular challenge or a common challenge with people that we're in relationship with or community with, and then kind of see, yeah, like, does anything feel a little more relevant that is still in the realm of, or accessing pleasure as a tool for better well-being and joy beyond like, oh, I feel happy for a little while, like, like making Mm. it like an intentional part of the practice. And not totally desexualizing pleasure, but not making pleasure all about sex, which is kind of, especially online because of censorship, like pleasure tends to be a synonym for sex so that people right. can kind of like talk about it freely and openly. And that's totally relevant and fine, but you can't have your sense of well-being or self-care or something tied to one particular activity with the intention of sex. Like, right. Pleasure actually is something that we have access to everywhere, regardless of whether we even feel sexual desire at all, whether we enjoy like masturbating or having sex with other people. And so it can, it just expands the options way more. And so with this newest iteration, it really was about centering the activities and some of the introspection reflection exercises on identifying and uncovering pleasure sources Mm -hmm. specifically as tools for self-care to maybe replace some of the more expensive self-care tools Mm. that (laughs) we are so used to. And by expensive, I do mean financial, Mm -hmm. but I also mean like energetic and emotional expense and physical expense. And that also, in my opinion, like brings in a way more accessible and anti-ableist approach to the Mm. idea of self-care and Mm -hmm. anti-capitalist without being like totally hating on capitalism because we we have no choice. We we are in it. So we have to participate in it. You know, we don't have to like it, but it's here. So it's, it's, it also feels a little bit more like autonomous and a little bit more empowered because you're not depending on access to something in order to then get the self-care and do it. 
Okay, I really want to get into the self-care element, but I don't want to leave the pleasure and sex type of thing to the side just yet. Did you want to say something before? I? Yeah, uh, sort of about this, because I don't know if you've experienced this, Robin, in doing, I mean, I think that I hit a little bit of a wall with teaching technique Mm -hmm. focused sex classes is that you're not helping people get to the root of, okay, wait, like what is, what are some of the things that you need to clear out? Mm -hmm. Whether it's like negative beliefs, certain patterns, perhaps like some speaking back to this, like puritanical roots of things, Mm -hmm. right? Like, are there some things in your thinking or that just live in your body from the role modeling that you've had Mm -hmm. that once you clear, like, cause in my opinion, you could go through this course and take a totally non-sexual approach, or you could go through this course because you are really looking to reinvent your relationship to your sexuality. But essentially like what we're trying to do is get you to like a baseline place of like clearing out the noise of what everybody else says you should do, including the like self-care machine, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Bubble baths are not going to solve every fucking problem. Right. Sometimes you actually have to like dig in, clear some of the shit out. And then you're like, oh, now I can actually receive pleasure or get honest with yourself. Like I'm a parent with three kids. Mm -hmm. And the fact is I'm only going to get 20 minutes to myself a week. Mm. Okay. What is the thing that you can do with that time that's actually going to help you build a relationship with positive feelings, groundedness, a sense of yourself, like coming back to yourself so that when you find yourself on the other end of like parenting small kids, as an Mm -hmm. example, you actually have something to work with to like rebuild a more committed self-care practice or pleasure practice or sex with your partner or whatever the case may be. Yeah. It's kind of like this combo also of how when pleasure becomes a euphemism for sex, then all pleasure needs to start. We start thinking about pleasure as only sex. Uh-huh. And then you need like, and sex can only happen with partners. And and sex always looks mm-hmm. like this and it ends like this. It's not sex if you don't have this and all of this stuff. And then you're you're just living this much more convoluted life when, you know, we um, Sarah imparted something that you had taught her and and the Etsy program around um, sexual uh, or around attraction and how expansive attraction is. You guys were just talking about that kind of expansive attraction when you met each other. You're attracted mm-hmm. to each other for the same reasons and seeing yourself really reflected and your goals kind of reflected in the other person and everything. And pleasure is really like that too, where there's so much more of it around and accessible than just this one thing. And we all get really pigeonholed into that. And -hmm. I think you were touching on that self-care becomes a similar thing too, where it's not self-care if you're not sitting in hot water. It's not self-care if you're not paying somebody to touch your body Mm -hmm. or whatever it is. It's totally a perfect analogy or it's analogous, the idea of like attraction is sexual Mm -hmm. or pleasure is sexual. Because when when it gets reduced that much, 
your options are so narrow. Mm-hmm. And when we learn that there's, there are so many other things that draw us to people than just, Oh, I want to bone that person mm-hmm. or like marry them. And, you know, right off into the sunset, <laughs> you're like, Oh my God, my options are so open. Like all the walls are down. Yes. Like you're not restrained anymore. And it's just like, Oh my God, I didn't realize that I couldn't really breathe. And now I'm getting so much oxygen that maybe I need to chill out a little, you know? Mm-hmm. And then same with the pleasure thing. When pleasure is just sexual, then it starts to narrow more with all those rules that Robin was saying, like, well, then it's sex and it sex is equals partner. And then sex equals inserting something into something else, but it also equals orgasm only. So then it's like, oh, here's your little pleasure option mm-hmm. opportunity. And it's like mm-hmm. a postage stamp size. Yuck, awful. So yes to that. And there's something I want to add because I always suspected this, but then got like actual confirmation of, of this among the many effects of the sexualization of pleasure and just reducing pleasure just to sexual I'm sure this is like maybe universal, but when I teach teenagers mm. and we are talking about a variety of things, when I say the word pleasure, mm-hmm. they all shudder and shiver like I have mm. just, you know, run my, you know, short fingernails on the chalkboard. Mm. They can't say sensual either. Side note. Mm. They can't hear me say pleasure. And then when I'm like, oh, I'm, did someone fart? Like, what's going on over there? Always through Zoom. <laughs> Um, yo, y'all, are you okay? And of course I know what's happening, but then I'm like, is, was it because I said, and then I'll, I'll say some word that of course wasn't offensive to them. Was it that word? And they're like, no. Mm-hmm. I'm like, was it the P word? Was it pleasure? And they're like, oh, you know, and they, mm. they're like, the sun is too bright. And I ask like, what's the problem with, what's the deal with that? Oh my God. And so then they, they're looking at me, like, how could you not understand why we all want to mm. run for the hills? And then they cannot say it themselves. They could not say the word pleasure. It was wow. too embarrassing because to them, it was almost like they might as well have been saying schmegma or like <laughs> ejaculate, you know, like that was how sexual and wow, like uh, private and embarrassing that word had become for them because wow. they're, they're the purely 100% online generation. This is like Gen Z, a little bit of Gen Alpha. I don't even know. But it, to me, I was just like, holy hell, this is way more extreme and intense than I thought. And so I would have to make a completely new and different lesson plan, just breaking down like, or even expanding people's concepts of things like attraction, pleasure, and sensuality. So it all didn't seem so sexual that they could not touch it and certainly couldn't talk about it with an adult. Mm. And then the, the conduit was usually like, okay, well, let me just check in real quick. Like is eating ice cream pleasurable? Mm-hmm. is petting a cat pleasurable and I usually I always ask what people's favorite animals are when I first meet them so I know that most of them were like really loved cats is that pleasurable and like it was like the ice had to slowly melt mm-hmm. slightly and they were still like icy but that was what would kind of open an opportunity to consider could pleasure be something other than stuff maybe we do with penises and vaginas maybe in boobs and I don't know vibrators and all the things that are embarrassing to think about is the, is it possible it could be more than that? Mm-hmm. And there have definitely been times where the kid is just like, no, absolutely not. Like they look at me like I am just massively full of shit. And when is the old wow. person stop talking? <laughs> That's fine. I planted seeds, I'm sure. I have to tell myself yeah. that. But that is like it's a huge social and cultural and like human consequence of reducing things like pleasure yeah. or attraction or sensuality to like, corny type concepts because then it becomes untouchable and so heavily felt by people that are just entering this world yeah 
Like that's, yeah. wow. And exploring their queerness. Almost all of them were either queer of some kind or non-binary and or trans. And so it became, the stakes were even higher for me because it's hard enough for, you know, the heads of the world, especially, you know, the white heads of the world with some money to like experience and access pleasure. Then what happens when you're already of an identity that has been intentionally like dehumanized yeah. or desexualized or depleasurized, and you have to like really fight for these little glimmers of pleasure or joy or humanity or safety. So it becomes even more like, oh no, like how, what do I do? How do I fight this? You know, like I thought mm -hmm. I was fighting this thing, but maybe we've got to go in this direction instead. And that's another thing that has definitely informed the pleasure attitude stuff. Yeah. And the way that I think about some of the exercises when Sarah and I are coming together to like think of things or share each other's thoughts and ideas. It's for me, it's been almost from the beginning, those memories of people's hmm. uh, inability to even say the word pleasure, mm -hmm. let alone in experience it. Yeah. I love that you're observant in a way that it, you're able to see what they, they really need. You're like you're not okay. judging it. It's mm -hmm. just like, oh, okay, this is different from what I thought. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to adjust to see how I can alleviate this pressure that they're putting on themselves or around the word itself. Or we can really limit how we're able to even just feel our bodies mm -hmm. by these cultural mm -hmm. ideas. Yeah, right there when you said like how limited we are with even just feeling our bodies. Mm -hmm. That's part of the embodied self-care in my mind and like what, you know, we're working towards with folks. So if you kind of break down just the meaning of like pleasure attitudes, building an embodied self-care practice that actually mm -hmm. works, like everything that Anne was just sharing is the shit that we have to people, we have to help people navigate as the mm -hmm. first step in the course of like, what actually is your attitude towards pleasure? Mm. Let's just get real about it. So we know what we're working with each of us as individuals. And then the course is a lot of exercise and interactive activities. So it's not a ton of lecture style mm -hmm. because getting to an embodied self-care practice is finding something that's really personalized. Right. So we've been asking this question, do people know what embodied means? Mm. <laughs> If we promote this as an embodied self-care, you know, uh, oriented course, like are people even going to know what we're talking about? We probably run the risk a little bit that people might not, right? So even just looking at the word embodied, it means that you're able to be present and receive mm. what you are engaging in. And so... I would say that really what we're helping people do is find embodied self-support more than self-care. But I think self-care mm. is, is the term that's better known, right? Because what it's going to be for each of us is going to be completely different. Mm. Like you both know how much I love exercise, right? And when I was in like my darkest times, that was my only outlet for all of this kind of pain that I had in my body. Like I had to move my body in pretty extreme ways. And eventually my therapist was like, well, there could be <laughs> other things sometimes that you do. Like you could be still mm. sometimes. 
sometimes, you know, but that muscle is really well developed for me. And it's something I can fall back on regularly when I need to feel empowered. But I think an embodied self-care practice is actually one where you get to go in any particular moment, like being really present and saying, what do I need right now? Mm-hmm. What is the thing that is actually going to help me and make me feel connected or relaxed or whatever it is that you're needing in that moment? And then that you have a toolbox that has a little bit of diversity to it so that there's a few different things you can mm. pull from. Because if you're like I was eight, nine years ago, and the only thing you're doing is like intense hit workouts, mm-hmm. then like your toolbox is pretty shallow. Mm-hmm. And like when you get something like frozen shoulder, like I've been dealing with in this past year and your your the context of your life changes, suddenly that's not available to you or you have a kid and suddenly you don't have any mm-hmm. time or a family member dies and you're just like trying to find a way out of the grief. Like if you only have that one thing, right, like that expensive cream that was sold to you then you're going to be kind of fucked in a lot of situations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Totally. I really appreciate the exercise examples that Sarah so often uses because I have the opposite experience with Mm -hmm. exercise. And so it's a really lovely example Mm -hmm. and like evidence of how it really is personal. For me, like exercise, I used to call it my Mm self-care, but I did not necessarily acknowledge or realize this until later on. It, w- it, it was self-care because intellectually mm. I was doing the things I needed to do to be able to control my body's appearance. But it was a lot of really what actually I would call like self-abuse, like mm. forcing four-mile runs, even if I had to get up at four, because I had mm. class at you know, eight, forcing a certain kind of weightlifting and doing that really consistently, regardless of what my body was actually Mm. telling me, I actually was not really connected to it. The only time Mm -hmm. I could feel my body was when I was utilizing it to do the thing I should be able to do. And then I need to get through so I can do the rest of my day. And among the effects of that is now my physical body. There are some things that do not flow and move the way that they really need to because Mm -hmm. they were in a state of reactive use and abuse and Mm. not just allowed to be and exist. Mm. And when the lockdown started at the beginning of 2020, where a lot of other people were really understandably going into some sort of like, you know, home exercise routine, it almost felt like forced permission to be still. Mm -hmm. And to not have a lot of these rules and structures going on. And I have barely had a consistent exercise routine since then. And that's basically four years. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily how I would like things to be. But the pendulum has swung so far in the Mm -hmm. other direction. And thank God that it did. Because I don't think I would know about my potential connective tissue disorder and some of the stuff going on with my breathing diaphragm and the pelvic diaphragm and these headaches that I've been getting or the occipital neuralgia that I now have a name for. None of that would actually be something I'm aware of if I hadn't been like real forced to be still and just fucking stop and Mm -hmm. spend a lot of time in a small kind of square shaped Mm -hmm. home for a while. Mm -hmm. And now my thought, the thought of exercise as self care 
is sort of like intellectually, I can see that for myself, but my body is just like, we can't actually do that. We actually have some disabilities now. It's been a whole process to even kind of see like, what am I able to even do, let alone like doing? And I like to be really open about that when there's opportunities, because it's just a good additional perspective on exercise so that whoever is listening to us or working with us, it there's representation of like both sides of that coin. Like we both get to sort of show yeah. the the relationship to it and how it really doesn't have to be one way. I'm I'm hard relating with this because um, I've I've had like a lot of uh, food issues my whole life. I used to eat in order to not get the shakes, in order to not get hunger pains, in order to like look normal at the party. <laughs> you know, it's like, but I was never eating in order to feel any kind of pleasure. It's like I know I have to eat in order for my body to stay alive. So I'll care for it in that way. I guess, again, I have to feed it. God. But now I'm like, the feeling of being nourished gives me this whole body kind of pleasure. It's a more wholesome thing. It's not about shaping my body into a particular way. It's not about, you know, doing it because I have to or I should. Mm -hmm. It's about this. I'm going to give my body this nice feeling by having breakfast before I go into five meetings. Mm -hmm. that's what I feel like embodied is yeah. that's really like you get out of the intellectual and you're just like I'm not doing it because I have to I'm doing it because of how the sensation of it helps yeah. the mind and the body be reminded that they're all the same and that they're they're not separate entities and that one isn't better than the other or more like rational than the other yeah and then you get to actually feel like that whole human when you then have to engage in all of the bullshit that we have to engage in during yeah. the day yeah Love it. You know, and I think of embodiment as being something that is really deeply personal in the sense of like, it like gives you that feeling of coming home. Mm -hmm. yes. And I think a lot of our training is around, especially if you're socialized female, right? Like being available to other people. Right. Or yep. to serve the needs of the collective, which of course is like, important, right? But there's this, uh, I mean, I've told Robin this, that I've started a meditation practice. It's mini, like it's not epic, but there is this really interesting feeling that I get as I come back to myself and get centered is that then there's this spaciousness where I can also feel connected to the world around me as well. Like mm -hmm. I just have this interconnectedness because I'm like all here. So I'm actually yes. able to connect with the larger world, not people. I just mean like energy. I think it's a key part of it because like when I, I notice that when I feed myself in order to feel this whole kind of sensation and feel that pleasure of being nourished, not too full, but nourished. It's I am more able than to like attune with my kids. I'm mm -hmm. more able to offer more to people because I have the pleasure gives you the ability to function in the world almost like you're filled your cup. It fills your cup so that you can, you know, then yeah. dish out some of it. You guys, <laughs> I got to take this course because I feel like I am primed for this. I am primed.
I think you like it. Hey, so Anne, I want to ask this other thing in relationship to the um, what you're seeing with like the Gen Zs and everything and having this repulsion mm-hmm. like we do to the word moist to pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what I, you're training and certifying sex educators through everyone deserves sex ed through Etsy. What are you seeing from them? You know, when they're coming in, what is your curriculum doing to kind of like influence or educate them or challenge them in a way that you feel like puts them out into the world in a way that will help the world, you know? Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of people come in with already a ton of knowledge and some of mm. them have a lot of training already in sex ed and experience dealing with other people or teenagers. And so the course and the program part of it or a big part of it is a bit of that context laying that we talked about at the beginning of this episode, where mm-hmm. it's just like, here's where this comes from. Here's why we think this. Here are a bunch of things that just feel true and have always been told to us as true, but they're actually just based on an idea that's just like real old. Yeah. And has been regurgitated over and over again in all of the books and all of the courses because, you know, Freud was the white guy who was, you know, had all of the smarts and all of the whatever books and opportunities and through white guy worship, just, Mm -hmm. you know, generation after generation, it, nobody necessarily was questioning like, well, why is that? Why is that like the standard thing that we always reference? Not necessarily because it's automatic garbage, but just why help me understand So we do that with a lot of different topics, including just like bodies and how we talk about them Mm -hmm. and what things are labeled and to uh, to also bring a a more expansive perspective on certain topics. In addition to that, a lot of the course is working with people's uh, imposter syndrome, Mm. whatever that means to them. And this idea that they have to know everything to be good at Mm. the job as though people who are good at it or even the researchers know everything somehow they aren't working hard enough or they haven't earned the right to also be listened to, you know, or have value or be worth something. So I I really try to bring in some of that into the course too, all with the intention of just obliterating all the walls, whatever Mm -hmm. walls are surrounding them and keeping them in one place to just like have more space, even if it's just to take a peek. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when is Pleasure Attitudes happening? Where can I sign up? You can go to sexplus.com and it is not S-E-X-P-L-U-S. It's S-3-X-P-L-U-S.com to sign up. And the course starts on March 14th and it's every week for four weeks. We meet for an hour and 15 minutes each week and we keep the cohort pretty small. So there is a cap on how many people can sign up because we want it to be a really, you know, supportive container. Mm -hmm. And I think that we have a special running until March 1st. You can use Attitude 15 for 15% off the full price tickets. I think I'm going to sign up. And if you want to be in a cohort with me... (laughs) <laughs> and Anne and Sarah, this is Good your big show. chance. <laughs> I mean, that's a, definitely a once in a lifetime, I feel like, yeah. opportunity. <laughs> I will also just think it's useful because some folks I know, like we're really burned out from going to like online, you know, courses or events and stuff. We do meet on Zoom, uh, but there is no microphone requirement or mm-hmm. camera requirement. So you can literally just show up however you are and use the chat because we always read from the chat. So no one else has to read from it. Like it's definitely supported. 
place and you don't have to show up every time. Of course, you get the most out of it mm-hmm. if you show up, but you get all the materials, you get all the exercises and you know what the itinerary is. So you also can do it self-led mm-hmm. if the idea of showing up and talking to some very cool open-minded <laughs> strangers um, makes you you know want to like run for the hills, then you can sign up and still get the benefits and just do it on your own terms. I need to mention your TikTok and Instagram presence is mm-hmm. amazing, doing the Lord's Thank work you. there. Um, how can people find you there or anywhere else that you want people to find you? Yeah, my social media is at the Ann Hodder, and that's H-O-D-D-E-R, not T-T. That is a common um, mistake, <laughs> uh, an understandable one. but. <laughs> And then um, Anne Hotter Ship with two P's at the end. That's my personal website. And that's where you can kind of see other stuff going on, including the Pleasure Attitudes workshop. And there's links there. If you forget where to go to sign up for this one, you can find Pleasure Attitudes there. And we'll have all the links in our show notes. Thank you so much, Anne. We love you. I, mean, I love you. We love you. Well, me and my popper, whatever you yeah. call <laughs> You know what was so wonderful? I feel like a lot of everything that you guys are doing, it's so in sync with what I'm kind of going through right now. I'm actually, I really am excited to take this course because it's a lot of the development that we've talked about in the podcast. And it's a lot of the development that I'm just like going through right now of actually like getting in touch with who I am, what I'm feeling Mm -hmm. and going from that space rather than, you know, who everybody else thinks I am and what I should be doing. It's not just about accessing more pleasure or finding a new way to treat yourself at the end of a hard day. It's a real shift in mindset. It's like a fundamental kind of basement level shift, I feel like, that you guys are talking about. And it's pretty revolutionary. Yeah, I mean, it's been interesting going through this course with a couple different cohorts and seeing what Mm. people go, you know, everyone has a really different reaction to the curriculum that we've developed, because there is a lot of the unpacking that's Mm -hmm. happening. And I also agree that it is really aligned with what you're going through, because Mm -hmm. ultimately, at the end of the day, I think that the journey that folks take in the course is finding authenticity, you know, mm-hmm. that personalized practice that hopefully you're going to leave with. But it's also about, you know, we talked about this a little bit, instead of adding a whole bunch of things in, mm-hmm. it's a little bit more about clearing some shit out. Yeah. Because yeah. truly, if you get that stuff you know, move some of that stuff out of the way that's holding you back or that you're doing out of obligation or Mm. guilt or shame or these kinds of things. Suddenly it's just like you can breathe a little deeper. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's hard because I think that, you know, the reason that certain things are so marketable, like buy this quick fix Mm -hmm. or like, come to this blowjob class or like, you know, find your G spot. It feels like a really tangible thing that you can just is a quick fix. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know. I mean, I haven't found a lot of those kind of quick fix, quick hit type things to actually be very lasting for me personally. 
to me, it's almost like dealing with the symptoms rather than the actual core issue, you know? So it's like you want to have like really amazing sex. Here's all of the very surface level things you could do. Mm -hmm. But it's like you want to have really amazing sex, like go inward. It's actually not an outward type of thing. You want to be able to really care for yourself. It's not an outward type of thing. You're going to utilize things outside of your body, but it's it's really, I don't know, all of this work is about relationship to self. Yeah. When you find the groundedness and what you actually really want or need, mm-hmm. then it's way easier to add the layers of other things on. Yeah. You want to have like a good source of Mm self-love so that you're able to like give and receive love and like they're all in conversation with each other. This is lovely. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm looking forward to this pleasure attitudes. Yeah, it would be amazing. I'd love to have some listeners join. We could connect with some folks who have been following along on this journey would be amazing. I yeah. would that so much. And also, I have a little offering out there in the world right now. The February issue of Ask a Dominatrix is out over on the Pleasure Chest website slash blog. And, um, and I did a little bit of a Valentine's Day theme, and there's a lot of acceptance and learning how to negotiate from your heart and also be able to hear what other people are, are saying to you. you nice. Know. Yeah. Robin, I have a segment for you. Gonna make you fucking mad. This might make you fucking mad. This is, uh, we're bookending this episode this week with too much of a dose of reality, but this is the world that we're living through. So uh, have you heard that in Alabama, embryos are now granted personhood? I have heard a little bit about it. I've seen some TikToks about it and yeah, I haven't looked too much into it because it just, it seems so out of like, you know, a a dystopian novel. It's hard to comprehend. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think that the religious right, the monster that they've Mm -hmm. created is now out running through the streets and they have no control over it anymore. So how this came to the courts is that... Currently, embryos are treated as property, essentially, when they are still at the fertility clinic or in storage. But what happened, and this is terrible, the clinic destroyed their embryos. No one wants this. But the current recourse for that because of the classification of embryos is that you can bring a lawsuit for destruction of property. Mm -hmm. They brought a lawsuit suing the clinic for wrongful death of a minor. Oh, my God. And in a seven to two decision, the Supreme Court of Alabama upheld that this was, in fact, that that embryo had personhood. So, (laughs) here is 
Uh, here is what is uh, just... I'm just breathing. I'm breathing through this. Okay. <laughs> such a massive, massive clusterfuck, right? So the fallout from this decision. Let's just think a little bit about what IVF mm-hmm. involves. You at the clinic, they are essentially creating the embryos. They're bringing the sperm and the egg together. So first and foremost, like we can get into all of the inefficiency of fertility, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's a complicated process that doesn't necessarily take. Once an embryo is formed, they often will then biopsy the embryo for genetic testing. There's something called PGT testing. And folks particularly want this testing done when they have a known genetic mutation in their family. Mm -hmm. So a lot of folks opt to have this biopsy procedure performed. The embryos are frozen they're stored, and then they're thawed. So just think about in that process how much opportunity there is for these embryos not to make it. Well, and like, I'm sure there's laws saying you can't freeze your minor child, you know, not specifically, but you cannot do, there's a lot of things that you cannot do to a child that you can do to an embryo. Because they are not children, you know? Yes. Like freeze them. It's like if you can freeze something, I don't, like what are you talking about? This is, in, this is, this is, I don't, all right, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, it's, well, and you also often have, you know, potentially long-term term storage. Right. So there are actual like shipping companies that are responsible for transferring embryos from a storage facility or between clinics so that it makes it to the patient's fertility physician. Yeah. So what like those companies aren't going to want to take this liability on. And this is what happens mm-hmm. when politicians mm-hmm. and not doctors right. are regulating medical procedures that they, A of all, do not understand, that they are using religious yep. belief. It's God is all over this document, right? God this and God that. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. There's one thing I do want to say, though. It's like, it's well known, like, and people talk about the efficacy of it, where many embryos will be planted during IVF because it's known that many of them will not make it. But that's how these, like, you know, multiple, you know, um, pregnancy births happen also where you have like eight kids or something because so many embryos were planted. So if you're going to be doing IVF where you know you're going to put these embryos into an environment where only one out of six of them will survive, is that not manslaughter? You know, it's like, where does this end? And like, is this going to go to the Supreme Court? Not that I trust them to not uphold it, but like, is this it's going to be challenged, right? Or is it just like Alabama? Well, I think that cases can be heard by the federal Supreme Court if they choose to hear the case. What is likely, so of the fertility specialists and the 
a Washington Post article that I read and the like repro rights folks are saying once one state tries something mm-hmm. like this, then a number of the other states are like, oh, great, we're not going to be the first one. So it normalizes it. So this is just in, the beginning. This is just the beginning. It could, exp- I mean, because of all of the this domino effect of issues that no one has considered, yeah. who knows? I mean, it could totally implode on itself because clearly the anti-abortion folks, I don't think are trying to create an environment where folks who are actively seeking to expand their families don't have access to do that. Mm -hmm. But I have been trying to wrap my head around, does controlling IVF serve that cause because it does further limit women's ability to have any sort of agency Mm -hmm. over their reproduction. I can't, I don't have an answer to that Mm -hmm. because I'm like, I'm trying to do mental gymnastics to understand how this lawsuit, how anyone thought that this lawsuit was a great idea. Right. I think they're trying to establish the personhood of the, of embryos and probably zygotes at some point. Um, And that, and that just, it makes it so dangerous to be pregnant. It just, it's a very dangerous time to be pregnant because you can lose control over your, your body very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the only cool thing that came out of this research that I did <laughs> is that I learned that the person who's in charge of thawing the embryo is called an embryologist. <laughs> Great. Well, there's one you- there's one ray of sunshine there. <laughs> I am an embryologist. I'm an embryologist. What do you do? Uh, so yeah, this is one I think for everyone to pay attention to. Uh, the nonsense continues. Mm. It's a hard week. It's a hard week. It does feel like so much backwards sliding. Like it is like if I used, I remember being a kid being like, what would it, what part would I have taken in such and such revolution or during this fight for equality or whatever? It's just like, it's a never ending fight. It just never Yeah, we're ends. definitely finding ourselves in a moment at least in our country's history, that is going to be documented in the history books Mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. I mean, if that hasn't become clear to folks, like you are in that moment and now is the time to decide Mm -hmm. which side are you on? Fuck me, it's rough out there. But there is also, you know, I do think that there are some really interesting things happening in the reproductive rights movement And there's been a lot of setbacks, but it's also generating like a high level of creativity and innovation and new ways of thinking about shaping these laws. And it sucks that that's what has to happen. But 
let's keep an eye on this space. Let's get someone on the podcast to talk to us about it because I do think that there is, I don't think it's all lost. I think that these are setbacks Mm -hmm. that are going to take us some time to recover from. Yeah. And I think we should take time to feel it and care for ourselves during this time, this bullshit. So, and you can find us. <laughs> Fuck yeah, pod on Instagram and TikTok. Yeah. You can go to our website, www.fuckyeahpod.com and get on our email list. If you happen to be a reproductive rights lawyer, please reach out to us. We would love to talk to you and have you on the podcast. Fuck yeah. Fuck Yeah Podcast is hosted and produced by Robin Jennings and Sarah Tom Chesson, a.k.a. my mom. Theme music is by She, Her, Sir. Segments are voiced by Kristen Smith Davis. If you're enjoying the pod, please subscribe and leave us a rating or review. And don't forget to share with a friend. You can email us at fyapod at gmail.com or follow us on TikTok or Instagram at fuckyapod. Thanks for tuning in.